25 through 37. And this is the word of the Lord. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. They stripped him. They beat him. They departed from him. They left him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, he bound up his wounds, he poured on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, that's two days' wages, uh, and gave them to the innkeeper and said, You take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I get back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You, go and do likewise. Uh, you can take a seat. Let's uh, pray. Uh, Lord, have mercy on us. Uh, we see ourselves in a few too many of the characters in this story. Um, but I pray that you would give us ears tonight to hear the good news that's uh, flowing throughout this passage. Uh, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give us a heart to feel you, eyes to see you, ears to hear you. Uh, because otherwise, um, we risk this just sticking in our heads. Just like all the Bible had stuck between this lawyer's ears, but it never made it anywhere else. We don't want to be him, but we know unless you are at work in us, we, are, we don't have much to expect besides that. And so, please come tonight and do what you love to do, uh, which is to show us yourself and to heal us. And to be a neighbor to us. Uh, And so, Lord Jesus, we ask this in your name and pray that you'll be pleased by doing these very things. Amen. Hey, before we we jump into this, let me just make an observation that will help you kind of track with where I'm going. So this passage, this parable, it's like a story that Jesus makes up to prove a point, right? And this parable in particular, it's kind of like, so we're on a stage here. It's kind of like Jesus says, hey, come up to the stage. I have a few different characters in this play. A few different costumes and scripts, and I want you to play every part. Uh, And so what you're going to see in this passage is kind of like how I structured the outline. Jesus is handing us this parable, or better yet, he's calling us into it. And he's saying first, hey, put on the costume of the Levite and the priest. Sound familiar? And then he says, hey, put on the costume, play the part. Imagine life as the dead guy on the side of the road who was the recipient of a patient mercy costly grace. And then he says, hey, put on the outfit of the Samaritan and and imagine life through that lens. And so you're actually, this isn't one of those parables where it's like, be a Samaritan, love people better. 
And it's not like a backhanded slap and say, you're a priest and a Levite, and it leaves it there. You don't love people well. Jesus is saying, hey, I got three outfits. Let's try them all on. Uh, Because each of them is going to point a little bit of a different angle on how we love our friends, how we love our neighbors. And so that's what this passage is about. Now, here's here's where I want to start. All of us have a method to our madness in how we shop at the grocery store, right? I'm a guy who loves prices, and so I get my little cart at Walmart, and I efficiently make my way through each little aisle. And when I'm going down the aisle, I try to get in and out of that store as fast as possible, which is often very hard to do if you go to the one at Loman. But I go in and out of those aisles as quickly as I can, and I am tracking those little orange boxes. Anyone know what's in those little orange boxes in the price tag? Any other OCD people here? It's the price per ounce. So they take the ounces of the product and they divide it by the price. And that that gives you kind of a common comparison to say, oh, this bag of chips is more value or this is cheaper than that bag of chips uh, per ounce. But that's kind of how I assess and assign value to all the stuff in that store. And that determines what gets put in my cart and what gets left behind. Now, maybe you're the hipster who's looking for the organic label or you want to know that your chicken had a name and had a happy life and a family before <laughs> it got its head cut off. <laughs> or maybe it's calorie counts and, uh, and fat-free content. You're, you're picking up every nutrition label to see what's this going to do to me in a week or two uh, once the calories stick around. But no matter what, you have a way of assigning value, assessing value to different things in the store, and that determines what you're attracted to and what you're repelled by. Uh, and, and sometimes you see, uh, this is me, I, I see a price that's outside of my budget. Like I know, I want to spend $1.50 on bread. I don't care if it tastes like cardboard. The fact that it's $2 cheaper than this bread makes it taste better. Um, but I have a budget for each of those things, an amount of money that I'm willing to spend on that item. And y'all do too. And if, if the item fits into uh, that little budget, I buy it. But what happens when it's above that? What happens when it's more expensive than my little budget? Well, you get something that's called sticker shock. You ever heard of that? I've used that term a few times this semester, but sticker shock is when you uh, read the fine print on a product and you're like, oh, that, no, I'm not paying that. Or you take something home and then you read the fine print and you're like, no, this is too much hassle, and you take it back to the store. That's what sticker shock is. And, and that's kind of a common experience with us in the grocery stores as well. Now, here's the point of why I'm starting by talking about Walmart. Do we not do the same things in our relationships? We have some standard, some value that we use to assign value and assess value with other people, right? And so kind of we go through our day or our week on campus in our uh, apartment and our roommates or whatever, and uh, we weave our way down those aisles every day. And we have these ways of like a child playing duck, duck, goose. You're valuable. You're valuable. You matter. You don't matter. You're invisible. I want to get to know you better. And I'm going to screen all your calls. <laughs> like we, and I don't know what it is. Maybe it's coolness, which is always hard to define what's cool and what's not. It's kind of like no one can tell you what cool is, but we all know it when we see it. Maybe it's coolness. Maybe it's deep, thoughtful, introspective people. You love getting coffee with those people uh, because it's so easy. You can, it's like it's thoughtful, it's sharpening. These are good things, but maybe it makes you want to repel or move away from uh, people who don't fit that. 
uh, or a lot of other things, athleticism, outdoorsiness, whatever your hobbies are. Those can be the, the things that determine what we are drawn to and what we're pushed back and repelled away to. And even sometimes we'll have friends, friends we're attracted to that we really like, but we'll go in and out of seasons with those friends. And though we've kind of like put them in our cart, to use the metaphor, and, and they're ours, we want to remain friends with them, the price keeps going up with these friends. Like something happens in their life or they become really needy all of a sudden or they're going through suffering or confusion or they did something bad to you and the price goes up and you're like, I was okay when you were $1.30 but now you're $5 and I'm about to go shopping again. Um, Sticker shock. Sticker shock uh, in our relationships and how we assess uh, value with these kind of things. And it's like what Tyrell read in in James chapter 2. Now, most of us are smart enough and kind enough to not like do a visual inspection of everybody when they come into RUF and saying, you're dressed nice, you go sit up front. Uh, You're not dressed nice, you stay in the back so no one can see you and please don't talk to any visitors. Like, we don't do that. We do what the second part of what Tyrell read was, right? We're judges with evil thoughts, James says, because we show partiality. Uh, And and part of... um, Part of what Tyrell read is we do it politely. We say things like, to quote James, Hey, I know you're hungry, I know you're thirsty, or I know you need this, or I know you need that, I know you're lonely, but hey, go in peace, brother. Be warm and be filled. God bless you. I'll pray for you. That's how we politely find a loophole in love with people like that. That's how we continue to assess their value. We say, you're invaluable. You don't matter to me. Uh, but I can't own it by just saying you don't matter, and so I'm going to kind of go the polite way and say, hey, I hope you get warm. I hope you do find food, and I'll pray for you, uh, but I, ca- I can't afford that. That's too much. That's out of my price range. That's beyond my budget. Too expensive. That's cutting stuff, right? James really gets our hearts, and so uh, he's saying, look, for people who are like us and easy to love, relationship is like sailing into a sunset. For people who are hard to love, Or when easy people become hard to love, relationships is like paddling into the wind. And you get tired pretty quickly, right? Uh, So this is kind of the lay of the land in this passage. And it gets a little harder for us for this reason. It's not just that we're people who kind of go through our relationships assigning value through some standard. But we're all kind of in on the joke, right? We know that other people do that with us, right? And in a sense, it's as if all of us have a price on our forehead and we walk through life with that price right there. And that price fluctuates. If, if I've been working out a lot lately and I don't feel fat and I feel beautiful, then that price increases and I, I matter more to myself. I'm more valuable to other people, I tell myself. But if it's been a bad month, uh, I haven't been working out much, I feel fat or something, it's like that goes down and I'm like walking through life like this. Or whatever other thing. Whatever other value you have, like being insightful in a lunch conversation or a Bible study or something. If you're afraid of people assessing your value, that person has no clue what they're talking about. We go through life like this. Please don't see my price tag. Because I know if you see how much it's going to cost to love me, you're going to run away. You're going to back away. And and you might even do worse. You might even be polite about it. (laughs) Where you and I both know you're getting away from me, but you're smiling while you do it. And so we're in on the joke. We know that other people also assess our value like that, whether it's body image, sense of humor, insightful comments, or whatever. 
We're afraid others are going to get sticker shock with us. We're afraid it's going to be too expensive for them to love them. Here's, here's a question for you. Have you gotten to the point in your life where you have realized that you're hard to love? Have you reached that point in your life yet? I don't think I had when I was your age. Like, look, I'm, I'm a friendly, nice guy. I'm polite to people. I'm laid back. It's easy to see myself as a very lovable person. Why are you laughing, Anna? (laughs) I was going to say, just ask Anna or ask Stuart or ask some of you ministry team folks who've gotten to spend more time with me. I am hard to love. Some of you, even though we've only known each other five months, you have had to decide to love me because your feelings weren't doing that for you. You have had to say, I'm going to show grace. I'm going to give him patience because he's dropping balls. And we have to do that with each other because you are hard to love, especially you nice people who have never offended a soul in your life. You are hard to love. That quality about you is hard to love (laughs) because you don't tell the truth sometimes. (laughs) And here's the other thing. Uh, And we're going to flesh this out in a little bit. Was it hard for God to love us? Was the cross hard for Jesus? Was it hard for God to love you? In one sense, infinitely hard. But he didn't get sticker shock. Look, this is kind of the lay of the land with our relationships. This is the kind of stuff Jesus is putting his finger on in this passage. How's the law you're assessing value? Outward appearance, purity, because this bloody, almost dead guy is impure to these, uh, to these religious people, these Jews. If they touch him, they become unclean, and so they don't want this guy rubbing off on them. They don't want to bear any of the consequences of his mess. They don't want any of his junk to splatter on them, and so they politely make their way around and say, I'll be praying that someone comes for you. And then time and cost and resources. Maybe this guy's too expensive to love in the state that he's in. Maybe if all he needed was a little extra food for the journey through Jericho, maybe they would have helped him. But in the condition he's in, that's just too much. And so they find a loophole in love and they say, actually, this guy's not my neighbor. And so I'm not required to love him. That's hard words to hear if you're the dead guy lying in the, on the corner. And so these two guys, though, the priest and the Levite, they are the two people that everybody in the room, if we took a poll and said, hey, how many of y'all think the priest and the Levite are going to do the right thing? Everybody would have said yes. They're the two who don't. They're the two who use the Bible, who use uh, God's law as an excuse to keep people far away. To say, hey, I need my boundaries. Uh, And this guy is kind of getting in the way of that, and so I need to keep him uh, away. Even though they knew the law, right? You know, I said in my prayer, a lot of us were people who know the Bible. We can quote scripture just like this lawyer quoted scripture. Oh, Jesus, let me quote for you Deuteronomy. The law is summarized this way. Love God and love your neighbor. They know Micah 6.6. 6. What's the Lord required of you? To walk humbly, to love just, to, to do justice, to love mercy. They knew that, but it didn't like pop up into their radar when they saw a guy who actually needed justice, needed love, needed mercy. And so they walk past him. Just like we walk past a lot of people, right? Remember the, the shopping metaphor? If it's too expensive for us. Uh, Maybe it's your best friend, but they make some requests that are too costly. 
And so we have polite ways of kind of strong-arming them or pretending like we didn't hear it. Uh, And I do this too. And so Jesus is saying, you're the Levite and you're the priest in this parable. We pass by people that we are called to love and to care for, and they suffer because of it. Here's one more thing um, that he points out by helping us see that we're the priest and we're the Levite. Uh, The way that you love other people uh, is a really good measuring stick for actually the way you think God loves you. Or you could say it this way. Your relationships horizontally, your relationships with other human beings, actually really point to what your vertical relationship with God is like. Here's what I mean by that. I think the way that the lawyer loves his neighbors actually says a lot about the way the lawyer thinks God loves him. Because the lawyer loves according to this value system. You are valuable... You are clean, you are worthy, you matter if you are following all of the law, if you haven't messed up, if you're not unclean, uh, and all of these other adjectives after that. Then you count. You jump through all these hoops and then you count. Then you matter. Then I'll love you. Uh, and then you're in. And I think he thinks, uh, I, think he, I think this guy would probably tell you in his heart of hearts he thinks God loves that way too. Hey, you jump through all the hoops. You keep your act together. Color inside the lines. Don't screw up. Don't ask too much of me. And then I'll love you. You ever notice how bitter people usually think God is bitter towards them? Impatient people in their heart of hearts really do believe that God is tyrannical and patient with them. He is always rolling his eyes and always sighing that you're not further than you are. The way we treat other people says a lot about how we think God treats us. And it actually says a lot about how we view God. Is he a tyrant? Is he demanding? Is he oppressive? Is he with a trident poking your back, always pushing you down further? Uh, Or is he something else? That's going to show up in your human relationships. And so the application question is pretty obvious. How do your human relationships, what do they say about the way you think God treats you? How is that a helpful diagnostic? A good tool for confession or a good tool for maybe repentance or saying, Lord, I'm sorry, I've seen you more like someone who's evil than someone who's good and righteous and loving. And so look at your human relationships. Look at your roommates if you really want a good read on what your relationship with the Lord is like, which is convicting. But again, I said Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus never stops with conviction. He never stops with law. He never stops with do this. And so where does he go? Uh, He goes to what we call the gospel, the good news. Uh, John Bunyan is an old pastor from uh, England, Puritan pastor. He wrote, I think, what's the second or third best-selling book in all of human history called Pilgrim's Progress. A lot of you have probably heard of that. This quote is not from Pilgrim's Progress, but John Bunyan is saying, uh, he's kind of getting at what I'm talking about when he says this. He wrote this in a poem. He says, run, John, run, the law commands but gives me neither feet or hands. Yet better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Did you hear that? The law shouts, love better, be a Samaritan. Love like this. And the world does too. You know how moralistic the world is? (laughs) Love your fellow man, the humanist says, or the secularist. That's their constant pitch. But they never give you any power to do it. And so all they do is mock you in the corner while you realize I have no power to love better. My roommate's really annoying. 
Or my girlfriend or my boyfriend, you wouldn't imagine what they just did. Or have you heard what my parents did to me when I was a kid? You say, you're just screaming at me, love, love, love. How? Bunyan says the law, the law will scream at you because part of the law's job is to send you to Jesus. But the world will scream at you too. And the world will put it in nice little proverbs and fables and blog posts about being good to your fellow man. But all it does is say, run, 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 but gives you neither feet nor hands. The gospel says, the gospel bids me fly and gives me wings. How do we see that? How does this show up in the passage how does Jesus actually change us into people who love well? Well, that's our next point. So the problem in the passage is that we're the, like the Levite and the priest. The hope in this parable is that we're also like the dying man along the road who is patiently restored. Because Jesus doesn't stop just with the first part of that. Here's a question for you. And this kind of gets at how does the gospel actually, how does what Jesus has done for you and what his spirit is doing in you, How does that actually give you wings to fly? And so when the gospel says to the bird, fly, fly, that is beautiful and joyful, right? But when the law yells at a frog and says, fly, fly, (laughs) that will drive you insane and drive you into depression. Uh, So how do we actually begin to become people who give generously, love generously, who see someone who's expensive to love outside of our budget, sticker shock, and it doesn't phase us or doesn't phase us as badly? How do, you, how do you pay? How do you make withdrawals if there's no money in your account? How do you respond to someone who tells you, hey, you need to be more generous if there's no money in your bank account? You can have all the desire you want, but if there's not any money in your account, you can't give more. And so is Jesus the kind of God who says, pay, pay, pay when there's no money in your account? Or is he the one who whispers, hey, check your account. I have filled it. And now... We need to learn what it looks like to not be a slave to money. Now we need to learn how to live freely with our money and use it to bless other people. And so Jesus never asks you to make a withdrawal or to pay in terms of a costly relationship until you have taken a look at the bank account and realize what he has put in your bank account. And so all you're really doing is, is channeling what he's given to you to other people. Where do we see this in the passage? Where do we see you and I as the dead man dying along the road and Jesus as the true neighbor? As God is the neighbor in the passage who takes care of the hurting one. Here's where. Follow along with me. I'm going to hop all over the passage. But who found us dead along the road and stooped down? Jesus did. Who saw us and had compassion on us? Jesus did. Who will bind up our wounds and who is binding up our wounds? Jesus does. Who has shared all of his resources to get us to where we need to be? Jesus has. Who has, with his own life, financed every last penny of what it will cost to make you look like God again, to make you love again, to make you serve again, to make you normal again? Who has bankrolled all of that? Just like the neighbor in the passage, Jesus is the true neighbor who's done that for you. Who's shown us mercy Jesus has. So who's the true neighbor? God is. Who's the good Samaritan? Jesus is the good Samaritan. You've got to hear that before you hear, (laughs) be a good Samaritan. Because most sermons on this passage, that's all they are. This is how we love better. Go love better. 
Not until you see God being your neighbor who finds you beside the road, stoops down, and pours out all of his resources, all of his life, all of his love to restore you to normality and better, to bring you back to wholeness. Tim Keller uh, talks about in his book called Meaning of Marriage, um, he, kind of, he kind of puts this in the relationship context and he says, to be loved but not known is comforting, but it's superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. Somebody sees the price tag and they walk away. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like how God loves us. Truly known, truly loved. He doesn't flinch with sticker shock. He doesn't say, let me look at the contract and see what you're going to do in 10 years. He doesn't read the fine print. He doubles down. And he pours himself out for his people. Uh, And so uh, Keller says, that is what liberates us from pride. It's what humbles us out of our self-righteousness, our judgment, our assessment of value. And it's what protects us against any difficulty life can throw at us, including the difficulty of being judged by other people or people saying you don't matter because you're like, well, I beg to differ. Because one says I do matter. And he's put all of his resources and all of his life and all of his love on the line to back up what he says. Now, here's the thing as we begin to kind of wrap up and and wrap up our last point. This does more than just put joy in your heart. The gospel, God's work for you and his work in you uh, for the sake of others uh, actually changes your identity. And here's how we see it. But catch that. It it does more than just give you kind of good vibrations. And you're like, okay, I'm feeling good. God loves me. I'm going to go out and love my roommate now. I can kind of endure their dishes now. And I can endure that person's annoying sense of humor or their brashness or whatever. It does more than just give us good feelings. What it does is absolutely at your core, it changes who you are. And how do we know that? Because Jesus never answers the question that starts this whole thing. The question never gets answered. This lawyer wants to have a little attorney debate on semantics and and word language. And he says, okay, well, who exactly is my neighbor? Jesus never answers the question who his neighbors were and were not. Jesus doesn't play ball. The guy never gets an answer. Because Jesus says at the end, what question does Jesus ask? Read it with me. He says, which of these three, in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor which of these three, three which of these three proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers and so jesus has said this you're not a person who continues to move through life now always asking who's in who's out who am i supposed to love who am i not supposed to love who's my neighbor who's not my neighbor he's saying you are a neighbor now you are the neighbor and so, for instance, you're not a person who comes into Corbett Auditorium on Tuesday nights anymore wondering, who's going to come talk to me? Who's going to befriend me? Who's going to welcome me? You're the neighbor who looks around you and says, who can I welcome? Who can I befriend? And you go to your small groups. And that really takes a lot of fear away of going into a room full of strangers. When you go in saying, Lord, I'm scared. I don't know these people very well. I kind of don't want to be here. Give me grace. Give me grace but help me to go talk to them. Help me to love them. 
because I am a neighbor now. I am free to be care to care about other people's needs. I'm free to notice how I can participate in them coming back to life. I don't have to be a parasite who is always running around like this or always running around down the aisle saying, you're valuable, you're not, you matter, I don't care to ever remember your name. You're free from that because it changes you at your very identity. How does this actually change us in our day-to-day living? Look, a lot of the Christian life, Simeon said this uh, introduced in one of his songs, The word meditate. You know what the word meditate means? It's like, try to be intentional about remembering. God tells us to meditate a lot. Why does he tell us to meditate a lot? Because he knows we're forgetful people. That's why you tell people to practice their language lessons every day. Why? Because you know learning a new language is hard. And so God is saying, continually refresh your mind with reality, with what is true about you now. I am your neighbor. This is a picture of how I have found you dead and lifeless and I am restoring you back to life forever. Go and do likewise. Remember he says fly, but to the bird, to the thing that's become a bird now. He's not screaming fly to a a little frog now who can't. And so freedom looks like learning to flap those weak little wobbly wings and at first you're really discouraged because you're like, I can't fly, I can't fly. You remember the illustration from a few weeks ago, what that mother bird does? When the baby says, I'm not going to leave the nest, it's too comfortable. Well, the mother bird starts taking the sticks out of the nest. And you start feeling life crumble beneath your legs. And God is like, hey, it's okay. I'm teaching you to fly because I gave you wings for the air. God is more committed to you and I loving our roommates, our friends, this campus. Weird people on this campus. (laughs) People who put up tables out in front of Corbett that are like... I can't believe you're willing to say that in public, that that's you. It frees us to love people like that and to not be afraid of that relationship and to love people right here. If if you turned around your head 360, you would see people who are hard to love. And if people turned around, they would see you and say, oh, yeah, they're hard to love too. But this actually frees us uh, to be different. And so God's love actually reorients how we love uh, other people because it turns us into the neighbor and it really changes how we walk through campus. How, does, how do we see this playing out in life? If, you've, if you know enough church history, uh, which would mean you're not normal, um, but if you uh, are familiar with the early church, uh, in, the, in the second and third century, uh, we see in a, a, just a beautiful example of how what I'm talking about manifested itself amongst a body of Christians. Plague began to ravage these little towns. You imagine what sanitation was like in the second and third century. So plague just was absolutely decimating entire cities. And guess where all the citizens ran? They passed by the other side. They get out of town, abandoning family, every, every man for yourself. Run and save yourself. But there was a group of people who ran the opposite direction. Christians in those towns were running back to the city. Because somebody had to take care of the dying people. And somebody had to bury the dead people. And who was free to go? Only the Christians. Why? Because their account was full, and so they could pay. Everybody else was bankrupt, and they saw the cost of that, the cost of many of them paid by their very lives. And they saw the sticker shock, and they ran 
but not these Christians. They believed this stuff, and it radically changed the world's history forever. Because you want to know how people began to be converted? They saw Christians dying for strangers. And they said, that is not from this world. That is life. That is freedom. That's a picture of what it looks like in history. What could it look like in RUF? What could it look like here if we become people, look, not just a ministry that's nice to people, not just a body of people who are polite and welcoming, because you can be that and have the spirit involved in your life, 0%. Anybody can be nice and polite. What would it look like for this group of people, for us to become people who see costly people and don't blink, but say, come on in, you're in a room full of hard-to-love people. And God's going to help us fix, figure this out together because he is our neighbor and he has already paid the bill for us to be rehabilitated just like this guy. And patiently, penny by penny, moment by moment, resource by resource, he is pushing us towards restoration. So come be a part of the party. We're screwed up and so are you. We want RUF to be a place where we can confess we're priests and Levites with honesty. We can own our sin. That's why we say we're here for weary people, skeptical people. Uh, It's a place where we can rejoice that we're the dying man that God paid attention to, stooped down and breathed life into us. And we can have hope and we can love each other better because Jesus has said, you're free to become the Samaritan now, who over time loves better and better because you're repenting of those shopping cart ways and you're learning to love in expensive ways because your account is filled up now. That's what RUF could be. Uh, And so... The last point I want to finish with is this. I want to tell you two quick stories, and then we're done. We have hope because Jesus says we can become the Samaritan through his patient work. And so we can see others. We can share our resources. We can risk our own well-being for them. We can give costly to them because we're free. And the more we give, the more others live. Remember that. The more you give, the more others live. There's only one parent in the room tonight, Tito. Becca, you'll get to appreciate your dad in a new way tonight. Here's a way to illustrate this. The more you give, the more they live. With parents, Anna and I are uh, having to reckon with this with the baby on the way in September. Uh, Your parents, for you to grow and thrive and live, guess who had to give away their life? Your mom and dad. Guess who had to give away their sleep? Guess who had to give away their money? Guess who had to give away their well-being? Guess who had to give away their sanity through your teen years? Guess who had to give away their social life? Guess who had to give away friendships? Sacrifice, 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 sacrifice. And what comes out of it? Life, 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 life. And for those of you with really hard families and really hard backgrounds, this is the reason it's hard. It's because maybe your parents didn't give of themselves. And you feel like life, struggling life. The more you pour out of your life, the more others come alive. It's like a seesaw. And the ironic thing about the gospel is you actually begin to come alive too. Because God said that's the freedom you were made for, uh, to love like that. And so, we are free in Jesus to love in an expensive, costly way. How do you do it? By his mercy, by his patience, by his grace, you begin to flap the weak, wobbly wings. 
You begin to confess, Lord Jesus, I'm like a priest, I'm like a Levite. I judge people with evil thoughts. Cool people I stick around with. Hard to love people. I'm polite, but I don't care about them. Have mercy on me. Jesus, thank you for seeing me in the gutter. Thank you for, even as I learn to love my neighbors, putting me back together in this place. And Jesus, thank you for the hope that one day I will love well. Because when you see him, you will be like him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do need you desperately to do the very things in this passage you promised to do, but we we don't just cry out hoping to get your attention. You're the one who's put these desires in our heart. You're the one who's told us, cry out to me, and I will give you the very things you seek. And so this is one place where our desires are certainly in line with your desires. Help us to love our neighbors better. Help us to see how you love us better. Uh, and we pray all of this uh, for the sake of your, uh, your joy and your glory. We ask it in your name. Amen.